What if you were looking for a job and you came across a job description that just had one simple bullet point? You will be yelled at. You will be yelled at a lot. I mean, would you, would you apply for that job? I wouldn't. I've been thinking about people who get yelled at as part of their job a lot because confession, there's this social media account that I like that shows people behaving badly at airports yelling because the flight's been canceled, yelling because someone cut them in line. And I had to cool it a little bit because I get judgy of those people because I'm not judgmental. I only judge people who are judgmental. I started getting this sense of pride, like I would never do that because I'm so emotionally healthy and mature. But as I was liking these things and laughing at people getting pulled off of planes and things like that, I started to think, ooh, if I'm really honest, the same thing goes on in my heart when I feel like there's been an injustice. The universe has conspired to wait, make me wait five minutes longer for my coffee at the Starbucks pickup line or, or whatever it is. Um, and I started to get some empathy for the people who actually do that job. And there's a lot of people in our culture who, who take a lot of flack for things that aren't really their fault. If you travel, ticket agents, flight attendants. Um, but I would think most people get into law enforcement because there's this, this noble impulse to, to help make the world a better place. But as you're writing a traffic ticket, people aren't usually filled with gratitude for you helping to make sure people aren't parked in the wrong place for too long and things like that. Well, there's a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs these days where people, uh, where people get yelled at. And we could throw more modern examples, but today I want us to consider a story about Jesus and a tax collector in the first century. Now, if you go to Israel on any tour just to set the table. If you ever uh, read a book about Israel's history, it's really hard to look around without seeing the signs of Herod the Great. I mean, this guy, to say he was a big deal almost undersells his, his mark on Israel's history. I mean, it's almost 2,000 years later and his fingerprints are still all over the nation of Israel and also that region. And when he died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided up amongst his sons, divided up into three parts. So one son got the southern part of Israel, one son got the northeast corner, and one, scene, uh, one son got the northwest corner. Why am I telling you all this? Well, just imagine that one kingdom became three and you live there. Imagine this happened to your nation, wherever you're watching this from, or maybe it's your town, it gets divided up. Imagine if you know a foreign power came in and was over that kind of uh, dissection and, and the, the, the redrawing of lines. Imagine you're, you're a citizen there, you're just an average person trying to go to work, but now all of a sudden you have to go to customs. You have to... Uh, obey different rules, maybe from one neighborhood to the next. Maybe you're right on this new dividing line. And what's okay over here isn't okay across the street. Imagine going to work on a road that used to be free, but now because the kingdom's divided up, it ain't free anymore. 
So Capernaum was a town in ancient Israel with one of these new rules, with a new toll booth. And people are coming to work, going, going from the Golan Heights into Capernaum on the north shore of the Lake of Galilee. And now they've got to pass through this new toll booth. And the people hated the tax collectors and hated that they were collecting these taxes in a way that skimmed a little bit off the top so the tax collectors could line their own pockets. I know this is refresher for some of you, but think about how you would feel when you were being taken advantage of because of this corruption. This person in the tax booth is getting rich off of you taking money out of your kids' mouths, taking money out of your pocket, your neighbor's pockets, your your family's pockets. And to make it worse, their actions are perpetuating a systemic injustice. They're helping the Roman oppressors get rich, not to mention the corrupt Herodians that not too many people were fond of back then. So, tax collectors, they're getting rich. Herod's sons, they're getting rich. And Rome is still staying in power, all thanks to your contribution. So these tax collectors, uh, they were excommunicated from worship at a Jewish synagogue. I didn't know that until recently. I'd grown up knowing, oh, they, you know, no one likes the ancient IRS and that kind of thing. But seriously, it was to the point where they couldn't even go and worship at the synagogue, excommunicated. These folks... These guys were highly visible, often on a raised platform as you come into the entrance of the town or the gate to the city. So everyone knew where they were and knew where to, where to pay, where to pay the piper. And most people remembered. I just imagine paying that. When you remember, this used to be free. So in this town where the story takes place in Capernaum, no different. Imagine... This tax collector's name is Levi. He probably didn't like this new Herodian leader. I mean, he he was not well liked. Uh, This tax collector may have resented Rome's rule a bit, but he was benefiting from it. He was complicit. And there Levi sat taking, taking all of that anger and resentment as part of his job. Imagine like absorbing that into your heart and into your soul. And this is a town also that Jesus frequented a couple of years ago. I mean, it's it's not a large area where Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry life. He, He would have passed by this booth quite often. Probably recognized Levi by by face. And we come to this verse in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. A couple of things that we don't quite catch in the English translation of this is that the tense of the crowds kept coming Like the crowds kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And Mark tells us that as as long as the people kept coming, Jesus kept teaching and teaching and teaching. Um, This was was a lot of, of teaching and crowd going on. Like there's a buzz building is what Mark is trying to say. And then 
Jesus sees Levi sitting there in the tax collector's booth. Doesn't yell, uh, doesn't plead. In fact, in the original language, it's a command. Follow me, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Didn't shout, didn't spit it out. And I wonder in this moment, was this the first time in ages that someone spoke to Levi like a human being? Was this a time where, as, as Levi had to notice, this is Levi who would become the, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, probably noticed the crowds going and going to Jesus, had probably heard, it's not a massive town by our standards, people know each other, heard about demons being cast out, heard about people being healed. And then all of a sudden this person speaks to him like a human being with a command? Follow me? Now, in the Sunday school version of this, with the, the flannel board and the, and the, the people that stick to the board, uh, he, he leaves his tax collector's booth and follows Jesus. And yay! And, and that's true. He did follow Jesus. But lately, I've been thinking about everything Levi had to leave behind. It'd be hard to say no to that money. I mean, I can't imagine that's a job you just walk away from. <laughs> And, 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 and stay rich. Like he was leaving behind money, probably leaving behind some security guards. Imagine, you know, I, I don't think those benefits were offered to someone who, who resigned from that position. He's, he's leaving safety. He's leaving security. And now he's placing himself with the very people he was oppressing. And there's a deeper meaning in this too that Mark doesn't want us to miss. So Levi's boss thought of himself as a sort of king of the Jews. And Mark is, is putting all of these things together in his gospel to set up the original moments for the moment that Peter declares that Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's going to happen just a few seconds later. But right now, in this point of the story, the people didn't see Jesus as an up-and-coming king. They would have seen him as a sort of doctor and, and party thrower to use our modern, it's kind of crude, but our modern terms. Why a doctor? Because Jesus was going around healing people, holistically healing their, their physical maladies, feeling their, healing their spiritual maladies, and, and restoring them to wholeness. And I chose the term party thrower because Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God that he talked about was like the ancient biblical prophets. It was like this feast that everyone was invited to. When you look through the scriptures, it's amazing to see how many times the afterlife and heaven is compared to a Jewish wedding feast or a Jewish feast where there's days and days of eating and fellowship and storytelling and dancing and laughing. And that stirred the pot. People didn't like it. I mean, who would want to go with a party? Who would want to go to a party with someone like Levi? Wait, wait, wait. He's invited? Uh, hold on, Jesus. Don't You remember where he was sitting, right? Who would want this guy to be in your group? They were, they were, they were corrupt. This guy's going to stab us in the back. So Jesus invited him along. Come and follow me. I can only imagine what those, what those conversations must have been like. Because somewhere in there, Levi becomes part of the group, 
And I have to believe that Jesus instigated a party. All right, Levi, now that you're following me, let's throw a party, buddy. Come on, we're going to your house. And, uh, and I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't take him, we don't see Jesus taking him to church, the synagogue. Jesus didn't take him to the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus said, come on, man, invite your friends over to your house, let's eat. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Mark is showing how, okay, Jesus is really stirring the pot. It's gone from inviting one tax collector to follow him to like, now there's multiple ones and now there's sinners. Now these are folks that, yes, they're, they're doing things outside of God's law, but the implication here is they're outsiders and they're, they're just completely disregarding the cultural ideal of what it meant to be a good Torah-following Jew. They didn't, they didn't dress the right way. They didn't observe the same customs. They, didn't, they just did not fit in. And now Jesus is sitting there in the middle of it, life of the party. So Jesus is setting himself up for criticism from the social, cultural, and above all, the religious levels. Mark is building the tension here, and it's going to boil over later in his gospel in Jerusalem when Jesus gets there. But some of Jesus' critics just happened to be walking by. They just happened to see what was going on. Not that they were being nosy. Not that they were following Jesus. I can hear them say, I was just kind of passing by, minding my own business. And, and they didn't understand. They didn't understand that when Jesus touches something, it becomes clean. When Jesus extends grace, that's what purifies something. It's not these, these religious laws. And they were fed up with it. And Mark 2, 16 tells us, When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is some of the criticism Jesus faced. Other places they called him a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus' answer to this criticism goes to the heart of the matter. His, his mission. There's no point to a doctor that only accepts appointments with healthy people. Jesus was on earth to heal hearts, minds, souls, relationships, everything. And this would upset and was upsetting a lot of people. It would especially upset those who were labeling other people as outcasts and those sinners. Why in the world would you eat with them? And here's Jesus' response. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. These words pierce through so much of the noise today. We live in a world that loves to label, polarize, and demonize other people. I've got my little tribe, and there's no common ground between us there. And insert whatever name-calling thing you want to insert. They're too old. Oh, they're too young. They just don't get it. Oh, those people, they're too tough. That's just, ugh toxic, grosser. Those people are too soft. Uh, those people are too liberal. Those people are too conservative. Oh, those people are too passive. Oh, t- 
tone it down. Those people are too aggressive. Or my favorite, those people are too passive aggressive. The church is called to be something different than that labeling, name-calling group. We have the potential, you guys, if we're going to follow Jesus' model, if we're going to follow him radically and say, hey, we're followers of the doctor and the party thrower, and everyone's invited, no matter their background or no matter what different groups label them, we have a chance to offer the culture, the world, something that is desperately needed right now. We can do that by following Jesus' posture in our conversations, in our day-to-day lives, with our families. The call for us is to follow Jesus in this posture that moves beyond labels. Labels have their place, but it's usually for the immature, inexperienced. When you're young, it's good and bad. And the older you get, they're still right and wrong, but sometimes the old labels from when you were five and six don't work when you're 17, 18, 38, 48. And God wants us to move beyond just labels, like in Pharisee world, I would, I would call it. I found some funny labels that I'd never seen before. I love making fun of funny labels, like the stroller that has a sticker on it that says, remove child before folding. Uh, there's another, I guess it's a popular one, uh, label on an iron that says, do not iron while wearing shirt. It's a really helpful tip. And um, here's one that I'm going to remember because it takes a long time to get my hair, you know, just right. On a hairdryer, it says, do not use while sleeping. That's a pretty good idea. But sometimes we can live in label world uh, and, and, and not use discernment. So labels, labels can be a good thing, but I'm using them as, as, a, as like a, a 101 thing. When we follow Jesus, we move from labeling things and people to discernment. Philippians 4.8, one of my favorite verses. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. But... In labeling world, it's more comfortable. Oh, they're in, they're in our group. Oh, it's Christian, so it's got to be good. You know, even the early church quarreled about their favorite teachers. I'm on Team Paul, the Corinthians would say. I'm on Team Apollos. And some people are like, huh, you guys don't have it right. I'm on Team Jesus, which is probably the smartest team. But Paul had to, had to write them a letter because they got so carried away with with trying to make themselves feel better because they had a different label than other people. And Paul says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So Paul was saying, stop dividing by which teacher you follow. Guys, we're we're of Christ. That's the most important label. You want to get into labels? That's the label you want, of Christ. But he was also saying something really, really important for us. When we're interfacing with 
the others or people outside of our tribe, if it's true, it belongs to God. I mean, Jesus himself said, the devil is a liar, called him the father of lies. Jesus said, Satan can only tell lies. But because of Jesus, we can claim what is true as ours. If it's true, it doesn't belong to the enemy. What an incredible anchor that can be for us. Maybe you're, you're, maybe you're forced into an interaction with the kind of person that just pushes your buttons, whatever it is, uh, whatever, whatever it is. And we all have those if we're honest. But what if we could say, what's true about this person? What can we affirm? Oh, this person is created in the image of God. They may not be... They may not be someone who is following Jesus. They may not believe all the right things, but this is a person that's created in God's image. We don't agree, uh, but I can show them Christian love. That's true. What an incredible anchor that is. doesn't mean you affirm everything that's going on in their life or everything that comes out of their mouth. This is why discernment is better than labels. Instead of just writing them off, and saying, ah, oh, they don't get it. They have that bumper sticker on their car. Ah, oh, they don't get it. Their, their church doesn't sing the same kind of music that we sing. Like, no, it's discernment. Like, what is good that I can affirm here? And it helps us find bridges that we can use to connect with others. I imagine Jesus sitting at that table in Levi's house. You've got zealots there that want to assassinate Romans. You've got Levi and other tax collectors that are collaborating with Rome. You've got lots of different opinions at that table. But Jesus is discerning, saying, I'm not going to label you just by those things. You just, you, you need to know me. I'm going to discern, like, you are children of God. You're created in God's image. And I'm going to sit here and model God's love to you. And I like, the, I like thinking about this, uh, this, this model of like, let's move past just swallowing everything with a label on it or labeling people or ideas and, and completely dismissing them because it keeps us from swallowing untruth labeled correctly. What do I mean by that? Just do a little, just do a little experiment. Uh, get on YouTube and search for sermon and listen to everything that comes up. Just because it's labeled a sermon doesn't mean there could be untruth in there. Um, but God doesn't want us just to swallow everything with a Christian label on it. We're called to discern, search the scriptures. What does Jesus say about it? We don't want to swallow things that might not be true. So I have a challenge for you this week. I want you to be aware of when you're labeling people or ideas and just immediately dismissing them. When you're provoked, you know what I mean by provoked? You're poked, your fight or flight kicks in because of a person, because of maybe a difficult conversation. I want you to run it through the Philippians 4.8 filter and ask yourself, is there anything noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy that I can affirm in this? And, and celebrate that. Like I said before, it doesn't mean you have to accept or affirm the rest, but find that bridge. 
Because that, if it is pure, right, noble, excellent, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, that actually belongs to God. And that's a really good starting point. And lastly, as I think about that table, with Jesus sitting there, with Levi and his disciples, his ragtag group, remember that you're invited to Jesus' table with all the other misfits, outcasts, and ragamuffins. You're invited no matter what someone has labeled you. Some of us, that's, that's where we need to do our work. And we've been walking around with a label of, of whatever it is, not good enough, not smart enough, whatever it is. No, the only label you should accept is when you turn your life over to Christ as redeemed. I'm God's kid now because of what Jesus has done. So, Maybe the thing that provokes you is your own perception of yourself and you want to kick yourself away from that table. Remember that all of us are in need of a doctor. We all have a place where we still need new layers of healing and restoration. And when you focus on yourself and accept that, do your, take responsibility for your own brokenness, when you look around, and see other folks at the table with a label that, that provokes you, you're kind of like, okay, <laughs> we're, all, we're all on the same boat and we all need a doctor just as much as everyone else. So let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, what, what a high standard you set for us by your example, Jesus. God, would you please give us your wisdom right now? Would you please give us your wisdom to, to be a light to others? But also, will you please examine our hearts right now? If we're harboring an offense, if we are dismissing other people, people created in your image, Lord Jesus, to the, to the point where we're trying to, to downplay their dignity and, and to the point where we would, where, where we would, Make your name uh, less famous. God, we repent of that right now. And we ask for your heart, that we would see others in this world with your eyes and you would fill us with your wisdom to be able to be loving and accepting, but also to be the salt and light to this world. Fill our minds with truth. Fill our minds, like Philippians 4, 8 says, with everything that's pure and good and true and right. And would you change us from the inside out? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. I hope you have a great week. And until we're together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and may God give you his peace. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.